On this week's episode of the I-501C, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I interview Cliff Walters of Blaylock Walters. That's right, same last name. He is a partner and owner in the firm Blaylock Walters. And while he focuses on business counseling and planning and complex real estate transactions, commercial law and wealth transfer in estate planning, he really has served on a number of nonprofit bar boards in our community over the last, oh, probably 30, 40 years. He, he's really served quite a bit and is an expert in bylaws and governance. And so please join me as I interview Cliff Walters. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Corley. Just wanted to let you know we are now sending out a weekly, very brief newsletter tips, tricks, pointers to nonprofit executives. That includes both board members and CEOs, executive directors. If you're interested in receiving this, please go to thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter, and you can sign up. Once again, that's thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter. Well, I'm so excited today to interview Cliff Walters of the firm Blaylock Walters on the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. Cliff has done so much in our community. He is well-respected. He's he, he's kind of a bylaws guru. So that was the reason I wanted to interview Cliff. So Cliff, if you would tell our audience a little bit of, about yourself and how you came to be about in being so involved in the community. Well, when I joined the firm of Blaylock Walters, uh, one of the first things Bob Blaylock told me was that if I was going to be a lawyer in this community, I had to become engaged. And I had to connect and I had to give back. And uh, he didn't tell me what boards to go on, but he said, find something you're interested in, uh, learn from it, provide leadership and uh, engage within the community. So uh, I would like to think that I've done a, my small part in helping improve the community as it's evolved and grown. Well, Cliff, and I can appreciate that, and I can appreciate Bob sharing that with you and, and almost putting that requirement on you, but I'm sure it wasn't very difficult to do. But, but let, let's just jump right in. Bylaws. Bylaws, the nemesis for so many nonprofit board members. They don't want to read them. They may not understand them. Can, can you just paint the landscape, the importance of bylaws, why we should be interested in bylaws and understand them? And, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Well, Bylaws are the regulations of a corporation. Uh, they contain the basic rules for the conduct of the corporation's business affairs. They contain the provisions for managing the operations of the corporation, as long as they're not inconsistent with the Articles of Incorporation or other state statutes. The failure to have effective bylaws leads to chaos, uh, it leads to manipulation, and it leads to uh, bad behavior. Uh, so the best-run nonprofits have robust bylaws that are reviewed periodically to ensure that the corporation, uh, the nonprofit, is operating effectively. So this is the legal operating document of the nonprofit. That, that's a question. Yes, it, it is the it is the governing document of which everybody should understand. It is one of the governing documents. And as I just mentioned, the Articles of Incorporation are somewhat like the Constitution. 
and the bylaws are like the rules and regulations that are under it. So the bylaws must be consistent with the Articles of Incorporation, but they typically contain significantly more detail in how things actually work or are supposed to work. And so when you write bylaws or review bylaws, do you have a philosophy on on what they should contain, not contain? Are they more detailed, less detailed? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I've seen organizations that can be all over the board where they actually, in the bylaws, that define specific meeting times. I think, oh, wow, that's really tight versus others, you know, a little bit looser. So could you share your philosophy on, on the bylaws? The bylaws should be a tool that enables the nonprofit to operate effectively so there isn't a one-size-fit-all. Uh, a large organization with thousands of members, their bylaws are going to be substantially different than a smaller uh, nonprofit with a board that reelects itself uh, that has a smaller, more narrow mission. But in general, I prefer the bylaws to be simple, clear, and definitive on what I consider to be the core issues. How do you elect directors? What is the corporate purpose? When is the annual meeting? What are the criteria for becoming a director? How do you remove a director? Uh, are there committees? If you're going to have committees, do they all have to be directors or can you have outside people on the committees? Uh, what is a quorum? Uh, those are just key issues that need to be addressed. And I cannot tell you how many times you find the articles of incorporation have provisions inconsistent with the bylaws, and that creates confusion and leads potentially to difficult uh, conversations and even legal issues. And if, if uh, an organization were to find itself in conflict between the articles and the bylaws, like you just suggested, you change the bylaws or the articles of incorporation? That's a great question. You can do either. You just need to make sure they're consistent. It's normally easier to amend the bylaws to align with the articles of incorporation. But if the need needs of the organization have evolved over time, it may be time to go back and amend the Articles of Incorporation. Sometimes you find the purpose of for which the organization was created has now evolved. Perhaps it's broadened. But remember, if it's a 501c3, there is an application that was filed and approved with the federal government, the IRS, you will need to go back and amend your filing with the IRS to make sure your filing is consistent with what you're doing, what your donors are giving to the organization for, and then your bylaws should follow in line. And a lot of people don't recognize this, but typically your bylaws are also filed with the IRS so substantial revisions to your bylaws, the better practice is when you're doing your 
uh, periodic filings with the IRS, send them the bylaws as well. I know you had Rob Lane earlier on one of your podcasts. Uh, Rob uh, understands that, and uh, you want to make sure your CPA understands nonprofits, the governance responsibilities, so that your board is protected and your organization's protected. Now, now when we talk a little bit about the specific provisions in the bylaws, are, are, is there one area that you see the greatest opportunity for improvement? Well, yes. The greatest area for improvement is to make sure your actual practices are consistent with your bylaws. And if they're not, you either change your practices or you amend your bylaws. To operate in a manner that is inconsistent with your bylaws is potentially exposing directors to liability and your organization to liability. Which is a, the, a, probably the best reason every board member ought to read and understand the bylaws to ensure that they're operating in compliance with those. Is that a fair statement? Not only is it a fair statement, something uh, I'd like to emphasize to anyone that maybe has actually tuned into this podcast, please give every director when they join the organization and an indoctrination, a review, a uh, update on your articles of incorporation, uh, a copy of your financial statement, your bylaws, board policies. Uh, and then there should be a board book Perhaps you even put it online uh, that board members can periodically review and ask questions. Hey, are we doing this right? Or, hey, you, the board chair, you just appointed an audit committee, but I thought that was a responsibility of the board to do. Um, uh, people operate usually not in bad faith, but they operate casually and the easier you make it for people to operate appropriately, the more likely it is they will follow the rules. Have, have you? Is there one consistent uh, uh, area in the bylaws that is is absolutely you think this has got to be included in every set of bylaws, come heck or high water? It's too important to to not have this because you've seen potentially risky uh, risk brought upon the organization for not having. Uh, the provision correctly? Well, I would, there's several that are key. A, the purpose. You want to make sure that the organization's purpose is effectively stated. Typically, it's taken from the Articles of Incorporation, but sometimes it's expanded. Secondly, your election of directors and how you select, appoint, uh, put directors uh uh, on the board is absolutely critical. Third, you want to typically have an indemnification of directors so they know that if there's legal difficulty, the organization is going to stand behind them. Uh, and robust boards, at least of significant nonprofits, should have a committee structure that deter that is determined uh, 
what the committees are, what their responsibilities are, and how they operate should be reflected within the bylaws. And are there specific standing committees that you recommend that most nonprofits ought to have? Yes. Uh, the first committee, and perhaps the most important, is the governance committee because it oversees not just the nominations for directors, but it also oversees uh, and best practices the charter for each committee, ensures each committee is operating effectively, and it makes sure that the slate of officers is presented appropriately. It en helps engage and board self-appraisal and annual review of the board effectiveness, and it will typically lead the charge in the oversight of the CEO, an absolutely critical function of an effective board of governance or board of trustees or a board of directors of any nonprofit. The second committee that I like to see is a finance and audit committee. Not all nonprofits have audits, particularly the smaller ones, but they should have an oversight committee that is reviewing the financial information presented. And I like to see a periodic review of the internal control structure, which the committee is in perhaps a better position based upon who's on the committee and their interest in it, at making sure that uh, the organization has those controls in place that will protect donors, protect the organization. And as a little tidbit, very few organizations I find, at least until I get involved, review the CEO's company credit card. I like to see the credit card being reviewed because there's an opportunity, not so much for theft as I would call it the creeping justification of expenditures that perhaps wouldn't be done if there was knowledge that that credit card is being reviewed. Well stated. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean. So, so those are the two standing committees that you think every nonprofit, I, I, I don't want to use the term every, most, we'll say most should have. What are your thoughts on ad hoc committees and how should those be structured? Well, let me add a third committee, oh. compensation committee, because a key place nonprofits can get into trouble can jeopardize the organization is where the compensation is not reviewed, particularly for the CEO, to ensure that the salaries being paid are at market or below, depending on how you want to do it. If you're paying excessive compensation, you can get into the horrible world of enormment, which is a fancy word for saying you may end up having even as a board member paying money back to the organization because you allowed the fox in the hen house. Now, that doesn't happen often, but when it does, it creates terrible publicity for the organization. 
You have given away donor money to someone that shouldn't have had it. There are several local situations. I do not want to mention them by name, but uh, that is where a board was asleep and did not have a robust compensation committee. If you're not going to have a compensation committee, you should have an executive committee of key board members that serve in that role. And the board members that serve in that role should not be, if you have board members that are providing services or goods to the organization, they should, those board members should not be on the compensation committee or serve on the executive committee that are overseeing the executive compensation. At any time, would governance committee oversee executive compensation? It could. Uh, that would not be the usual function, but yes, it could be if it was in its charge. The ad hoc committees are typically committees created to deal with a particular situation. Um, and they're typically driven by uh, the necessity of the circumstances of the organization. It's usually the larger nonprofits that develop ad hoc committees Perhaps they're looking to create a corporate headquarters and they need a real estate committee that would engage in that. It's not intended to be an ongoing committee. Uh, it's for a temporary period of time. You may have a committee needed for a particular purpose, uh, perhaps cybersecurity. We're, we're requiring some new systems that we want to put into place. We have a board that wants to make sure that when those systems are put into place, the cybersecurity elements are robust. Um, the job, the, the key isn't to overwork your board, it's to make sure, or to the board to do the work of the organization. The key is to provide the oversight that's appropriate for the organization, depending on the size and scope of it. In those ad hocs, are they finite, typically? Meaning they will, I mean, the, the, the purpose of being ad hoc is it will end at some point. Is that correct? That is correct. If it's not going to end, then it would become a standing committee, amend your bylaws, and say we're now going to have a ongoing committee. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there are many different committees you can create depending on your organization and its purpose. I want to go back to the executive committee for a second, because I've seen organizations, they, they'll they get to be a certain size, the board will be a certain size, they'll create an executive committee, and now the executive committee makes all the decisions and just uh, absorbs all the power, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about how committees ought to operate and report into the board and just that dynamic? Well, that gets a little bit back to your philosophy of the board and the nature of it. The, the problem is certain nonprofit boards only meet two or three times a year. How do you get the business done if you don't meet more frequently? So they create an executive committee, which then becomes the alter ego of the board. Uh, and that's probably because you have a board of 50 members. I do not like board of directors of 50 members. I have a predilection of a board of maybe seven to 15 as a more effective way to organize. And then that board should meet four, five, six, even 12 times a year, depending on the nature 
of the board of directors and its duties. Uh, committees then meet to do the governance work, the finance work, the real estate work, the compensation oversight work uh, between the board meetings. Uh, you can have investment committees for those that are fortunate enough to have large investments or portfolio. Um, they typically do not make the decisions. They typically make recommendations to the board, particularly if those committees have non-board members on them. So to use an example, uh, if you have a $10 million endowment, you might go out and receive and put on a committee a couple investment advisors or people with investment expertise that do not want to be on the board, but they have expertise that the committee can obtain the benefit of. Based upon that, they make a recommendation that goes back to the board for approval and ratification. I typically prefer any board committee to be a majority of board members, though, and limit the outside participation to a minority of those committee members so it's still a board-driven entity. There's been a lot of discussion about board tenure, and is it two, three-year terms, and you sit off a year? Is it four-year terms? What is your advice, or what, what do you observe as being some the, the sweet spot, if you will? Uh, it can depend on the organization. When I chaired the Ringling Museum, their board terms were four years with a cap of two terms. Uh, I felt that wasn't uh, uh, that that wasn't working as well as it should. So I led the charge to go to three-year terms so that we could create greater diversity and inclusion on the board. And we're not just talking about race and color. We're talking about the broader community of interest and interest groups that when you end up with eight years or 12 years that a board member takes up a slot, particularly if you're capped at 10 or 12 board members, very hard to get the new people involved, to bring in new ideas. So my feeling is three-year terms, staggered, typically two terms of three years or maybe three three-year terms, um, I feel that at that point, whatever you've had to contribute, you should have done it. You go off, if you're still contributing, particularly if you're a deep pocket and they really, really want you back, that's great, bring you back the next year. Remember those committees, if you're still interested, you can be a non-board member of a committee, but let's open the door and let other people in to enhance your mission. Uh, CEOs of a nonprofit, um, the executive directors often like a stable board where they know everyone, they cultivate the relationships. Um, after all, their job depends on it. But if you have a respected and engaged governance committee, not just, hey, Bubba's a good guy, let's put him on, but you're out actually looking at the skills you need on the board, people that have the judgment and temperament to be collaborative on a board, but not a dish 
rag that you walk over. Uh, now you're building a board with seasoned people that will add to the board. Uh, it's a lot of work to be on a board uh, and to follow the bylaws um, and to follow your rules, but that's my preference. There are reasons to go in other directions, uh, but that's where I generally would be uh, centered as I would start the conversation. What are your thoughts on officer tenure, chair, you know, vice chair, past chair, year, two years? I've even seen three years. Do you have some some thoughts on that? Um, some organizations are so complex, it takes two years to figure them out. Uh, uh, and uh, if you have the right chair, having the right chair for two years is a blessing. Uh, having the wrong chair for two years can be uh, different. So when I uh, using the ringling because that's public, so I can talk about it a little bit. Um, when I was elected chair, they asked if I would do it two years. And I said, yes, I would, but I want to be reelected at the end of a year. And if uh, I'm not feeling it at that point, I don't want hard feelings that I've not stood for reelection. And if the general perspective of the board a, be it through the governance committee, is that, you know, Cliff gave it his best shot, but let's bring in uh, uh, Mary because she has more to offer at this point in time. I, you don't want feelings hurt, and you don't want to create ill will. So I like year-to-year -year elections, but if the circumstances are such, a chair can be reelected another year. But it can be discouraging to be in line to be chair and then find out you get tenured out because of term limits. So the the board chair, if you have a good board, their job is to lead the board, not do everything. So let's put a board chair in place that will elevate, create trust with this uh, executive director uh, and make sure that your succession planning is in place at all levels a key responsibility we haven't talked about yet, but that is a key responsibility of any board of directors, both for itself and for the CEO executive director. And that's a nice segue, Cliff. So what are some of the roles and responsibilities of the boards, key roles and responsibilities? You just mentioned succession planning. What are, what are a few others that you would insist on when you're on a board? Well, when I'm on a board, uh, it is critical you have an engaged board. So what does engagement mean? Uh, it can mean different things to different people, but um, one term that's used frequently I like uh, is a board should be engaged with its time, its talent, and its treasure. Uh, and if you're going to serve on the board, if you're giving money to the organization, great. But if you say, I want to be on the board, you have to do more than be writing the check. You have to be providing the oversight of the organization because it's your duty to protect the donors. 
the donors are looking to you as a member of the board to make sure the monies that they have given to the organization are respected, that if they're for a reserved purpose, the purpose for their donation is appropriately followed, that there are procedures in place to make sure that occurs. They want to know that you're not wasting money and letting the organization uh, drip, drip it away. And your job is to ensure the organization is run effectively within its budget. And uh, this is not to pick on executive directors, but many of them feel, well, it's up to the board to get the money. My job is to serve mission, but the executive directors have to make sure the board's doing the job and they live within their budget. And we've already talked about the internal control structure. It isn't that the board puts it in place, but the board should ensure there is one in place that um, uh, there's no 100% guarantee, but you feel awfully silly to find out the person paying the bill is also the one that's collecting the checks. Uh, that the person that sets up vendor accounts is also the person that approves the payment of vendor accounts. There are all kinds of fundamental things the board wants to make sure are occurring. Um, you want, as a board member, you want all the board members to be passionate for the mission and that they're uh, uh, helping introduce the entity to others, that they're helping the executive director provide the services within the community. Oh, you want to make sure that you're actually doing the mission. When, when, when has the last time you challenged your executive director to show, hey, how are we doing the mission? How do we measure what we're doing? What are our measurement standards? Uh, by the way, typically robust organizations are borrowing from banks. What are the bank's operating requirements for the organization? What are the trigger points where there's a breach of a loan covenant? Is the board reviewing that? How close are you to it? Um, when's the last time you've met with the organization's CPA without the executive director present? All of those things the board should be doing at some point uh, to make sure that you've got a great nonprofit that that you're the board member of. Well, well Cliff, you, this has been a wealth of information. And in everything you just stated, one thing really stood out to me with the board, the duty is to protect the donors, protect the donors. And everything you followed after that really is structured to protect the donors. I think that was very succinctly and, and well stated. Are there other things the board should be doing or other areas of risk they need to be uh, conscientious about? Well, that is a huge topic. Um, um, and um, you can deal with that from a, a number of perspectives. Um, uh, let me start with, if I go on a board, I want to know there's director and officer liability insurance. Um, you'll be amazed the number of times when you ask and they just don't know. Um, you want to have director and officer liability insurance. 
you want to know that there are bylaws and that the bylaws provide for indemnity of the board members. Uh, you want to know that the annual report is filed every year. How many times has an organization been dissolved and no one knows it? And guess what? At that point, you're a member of an association. You have joint and several liability with everybody. You really, really want to know your entity is in good standing with typically the state of Florida. You want to know that minutes are being kept of not only the board meeting, but committee members meetings, and that they're appropriate minutes, which means it's not a recitation of 40 pages of everything that was said, but it does reflect the board's engaged, asking the right questions, getting the right information, and that the actions of the board are being approved appropriately. I will not serve on a board if I find out the board members aren't attending the board meetings. That means we don't have an engaged board. It means no one cares, and it means the board isn't providing oversight. So there should be attendance. It doesn't mean you can't miss a meeting, but it does mean that you should be making the great majority of meetings from an overall perspective. I generally prefer a board that has an annual audit. Uh, if you're not having an annual audit, I want to know why. That typically means it's a organization with an annual budget of modest means and they simply can't afford it. But that just enhances the responsibility of the board to be on top of it. Um, I want to make sure there's an annual evaluation of the CEO by the board. Um, I want to make sure the compensation of the executive director CEO is reviewed and approved affirmatively. And I want to know that there's an annual conflict of interest report signed by each board member disclosing their conflicts of interest because the Florida statutes provide a very broad protection for board members of nonprofits. In fact, it starts out, uh, the statute, I have it in front of me, and it says officers and directors of nonprofits, I'm being broad here, uh, are not personally liable for damages unless they breached or failed to perform their duties as a director and though that breach resulted from a violation of criminal law or a conflict of interest where they received an improper personal benefit or they acted with reckless disregard and bad faith with malicious purpose or exhibited willful disregard, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's a pretty high standard to violate if you're engaged, you come to all the meetings, you take advice from the professionals, you have the committees, and if you do all those things and document it, you're almost golden. I'm, I can't say you won't be in a lawsuit, but you've made it really easy to defend you. But if you don't show up to meetings, you don't do your job, 
and a problem arises, oh, and you were getting paid to provide certain services to the organization, you're, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> well, well, Cliff, you have just given a tremendous lesson on the importance of governance and how boards can stay out of trouble. But then on the positive side, good governance attracts really good board members, like such as yourself. You said you don't join a board unless there's certain things in place. Be before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Anybody who's contemplating or currently on a nonprofit board, any advice you'd, you'd like to share? Some of the most rewarding things you can do in life, one of the best and greatest ways to bring joy into your life is through service on a nonprofit board that is providing a benefit to the community and is elevating the community. And for someone like me, who's not very good at sitting with school children and reading, um, and helping them elevate their reading skills, being on the board of an entity that does that and helping the people that know how to do it and to be part of that joy, the reflected glory of others that are bringing and elevating our community, uh, I think is marvelous. Every day, you know, we, we see the newspaper, we listen to the news. What do people do in conversation? They kind of bring you down with how horrible it is, regardless of your political orientation. Get on a nonprofit board. It's not about the politics. It's about helping each other. And uh, I find the best people in the community are there. And my dad always said, son, let people think you're better than you are by hanging around with the people that are better than you. So I've tried to follow that, and I will tell you, I've personally received much more out of my board service than I have given. Uh, and you learn the community is much stronger, more resilient, and a better community when you give of yourself. Well, Cliff, I couldn't agree more. There's certainly a joy to serving on a nonprofit board. And on this podcast, we do encourage everybody, they ought to certainly consider doing that. Cliff Walters, you're, you've just, you're a wealth of information. You're uh, a pillar in our community. Thank you for all the, your service. And thank you for coming on today and sharing with us the, the importance of governance in the nonprofit setting. Thank you. Okay, we just heard from Cliff Walters and what an interview that was. And here's the challenge for Reed. Recapping with Reed, this segment is to identify three, three nuggets. I mean, there were about 20 nuggets, but Reed has narrowed it down to three. So Reed, what's your number one nugget from Cliff Walters? Bylaws should be a tool that enables the nonprofit to operate effectively. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. However, Cliff prefers bylaws to be simple, clear, and definitive on the core issues. There you go. That's a mouthful, but very important. And what's number two? Make sure your actual practices are consistent with your bylaws. If they are not, change your practices or amend your bylaws. There you go. They should be one and the same, and there should not be an inconsistency there. And what about number three? Cliff prefers any committee to be a majority of board members to keep it a board-driven committee. You can have outside participation, but keep a majority of the people on that committee board members. I don't know how you narrowed it down to three, Reed, but those were three good ones. And we want to thank Cliff Walters. That was a tremendous interview. And thank all of you, the listeners, to the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. And we will I-501CU next week.